Uh, some of you will know that I, I love soccer. I love the beautiful game. I love playing it. I love watching it. I love talking about it. Uh, that sort of thing. But what I want to do now is I actually want to read you a quote from a, a professional football player, a, a famous soccer player. Uh, and I want you to think about what it says about who he might be as a person, all right? As I'm reading, it's not a very long quote. Um, this is it. My first girlfriend always complained about me not spending enough time with her. One day, she made me choose between her and football. I miss her sometimes. <laughs> Here's my question to you off the back of that. Is it difficult to figure out what is most important in that guy's life? Is it difficult to figure out what's most important in that guy's life? I hope, I hope you say no, not really. Probably football, probably soccer. But what's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? Today, like I said, we're spending our time in Acts 26. We're looking at this speech that Paul gives while he's still under arrest. He's still being charged by the Jews. But the difference now is that the Roman leadership has changed. Last week, we had a governor named Felix. This week, the governor's name is a new governor. He's Festus, and he's also, Paul's also before King Agrippa, so a, a higher official now than last week. And as we look at Paul's speech, what I think we see is the most important thing in Paul's life. Paul lives his life with the gospel at its center. He defends himself here in this chapter 26, holding on to the gospel as the most important thing. And what I want us all to walk away with from this part of God's word is this. I want us to be convinced to live our lives like Paul with the gospel as the most important thing. Whether that's with our words or deeds, convinced to live our life with the gospel as the most important thing to us. Three points this morning. The gospel is plausible. The gospel is genuine. And then we'll finish by asking the question, what is the gospel? Plausible, genuine, what is it? I'm going to pray and we'll get into that first point. Will you join me as I pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that within it we have everything we need for salvation, to be saved and to live for you. Help us as we come to it this morning to understand it better, to know you more and to fall more deeply in love with you, that our hearts may be moved by the gospel to such an extent that it is the most important thing in our life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 26, verse 1, starts off with King Agrippa giving Paul permission to speak. Paul's come before him, uh, and now he gives permission for Paul to speak, and Paul does. He gets straight into it. He addresses Agrippa, saying that, I find it fortunate that I get to come and speak before you. He's respectful. Uh, and then we're told he's especially glad that he can come and speak before Agrippa in verse 3, because Agrippa is well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Agrippa knows what's going on for the Jews. He knows a lot about their scriptures, presumably, and Paul indicates that he certainly knows about their controversies, one of which Paul is significantly tied up with, and we've been seeing that the last couple of weeks. And then what Paul starts to do is he starts laying out his Jewish credentials. I was part of the strictest Jewish group, Jewish sect, the Pharisees. I know, and actually the Jews know too, that I get Judaism, I understand it. Paul is, is kind of saying, Judaism is my bread and butter. 
I know devout Judaism like the back of my hand. In fact, it's actually the hope of the Jews that has me on trial today. The reason I am here is because of my interpretation of the hope that we are all, us Jews, waiting for. The reason I am here is because of the promise of a reunited Israel, the 12 tribes being reunited, that we are all waiting for as we serve God. And then we get to verse 8. And Paul asks this rhetorical question. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul's doing two things with this question, I think. First is he's reinforcing the resurrection. If you were here with us last week, we talked a lot about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, it is again today at the center of the action and Paul's message. The second thing that Paul is doing is he's actually challenging the Jewish reading of the Old Testament, of their scriptures. You believe all the same stuff that I believe. We're not as different as you might have everyone think, Paul is saying. So how can you think it's too far-fetched that God might raise the dead? That God might raise Jesus? Paul is saying, actually, the resurrection of Jesus is completely within the scope of what God is able to do. He can do it. And it actually also makes sense of everything we know from the Scriptures and of God and His plan to save. Paul is laying the groundwork here to show everyone that he's speaking to that it is completely plausible that the gospel he proclaims is true based on Jesus being raised from the dead. That Jesus' resurrection fits with Judaism and in fact that it fulfills all they know of their scriptures. It's like Paul is saying, it's not ridiculous to believe that Jesus is the one who fulfills our scriptures. But the rhetoric's quite clever because he's actually, he's actually putting it on them a little bit. You claim to know the law. You claim to know God so well. What are you saying about him by denying the resurrection? Are you saying God isn't big enough? Are you saying God isn't strong enough or, or powerful enough? Paul sets up here the plausibility of the gospel, particularly for a Jewish audience. Now, throughout this talk, uh, this morning, I'm going to be using that word gospel a lot, so I'm going to give a quick definition of what I mean by it, although we will come back to it in more detail at the end. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. It's a message. It's a message about the person, Jesus Christ, and how his life has everything to do with yours. Please hear that. No matter what you think about the Bible or Jesus, the claim of this message, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ's life has everything to do with yours. Why? Because this is the message of the gospel, right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And according to the Bible, you and I are all sinners. So if Jesus has come to save sinners, then the message of the gospel has everything to do with your life and my life. And Paul here, speaking to Agrippa, he starts off his speech by using Old Testament language to say that the hope of being saved, the hope of salvation that we've seen in our scriptures, is completely plausible. It's completely plausible that God has achieved that by raising Jesus from the dead. I want to ask you a question. Do you consider it to be out of the realm of possibility 
do you consider Christianity to be out of the realm of possibility? Last week, I said uh, that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fully dead, not CPR, he's not in a coma, fully dead, three days, and then he's raised to life, to life forever, never to die again. Do you consider that to be out of the realm of possibility? No chance. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for decades, but uh, maybe you fail sometimes to remember what, what Christianity is built upon, what the gospel is built upon. A dead man, raised to live forever. Remarkable. It's supernatural. The gospel is not just a nice feel-good message. It is about a deceased, decaying man who has breath and life brought back into his lungs to live a life that will never end. Surely that is out of the realm of possibility. Well, let me ask you something else. What do you expect God to be like? Whether you think God is real or not here this morning, what would you expect him to be like? I think we all have an expectation, or most people have an expectation, that God is powerful, at least He's powerful. He's got to be able to do more than than us, than me. And that's why when things go wrong, we ask Him for help. I don't know if you remember back in 2015, there were terrorist attacks in Paris, and social media exploded with one phrase, pray for Paris, pray for Paris. Whatever people's idea of prayer was, The idea of God was that he should be able, in some way, to help in this crisis, in a way that we can't. He's powerful. I also think we expect God to be more in control than we are. Because if we're not asking him for help in a crisis, sometimes we blame him. It's got to be your fault, God, because you're in control. How can you let this happen? I also think we expect God to know everything and to have a plan. Again, in a crisis, we often ask this question, why are you letting this happen? Is this part of your plan? Now, please do not hear me saying, or having a go at people who ask these questions. We all ask these questions. I actually think it's probably good and even appropriate that we do ask these questions. Why? Because I want to suggest that the reason we expect God to be like this is because He tells us that He is like this that He is all-powerful. He tells us that in the Bible. He tells us in the Bible that He is in control, that He is all-knowing, that He does have a plan. So if we expect God to be like that, and the Bible actually does tell us that He is like that, then why should any of us think it is incredible that God raises the dead? If we expect Him to be more powerful than us, in control of all things, to know everything, to have a plan, why would it be incredible that he raises the dead. Of course he can. The gospel is plausible. And it's not just plausible to a Jewish audience in the first century, but but to us. An Australian audience living in a secular culture in the 21st century. But Paul, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say that it's plausible. He goes on to show that it is in fact genuine. It's real. It's true. The second point, the gospel is genuine. Next section of the speech basically ranges from verse 9 all the way to 23, but I'm just going to split it up uh, into two sections for us. In this whole section, 
Paul tells us of his conversion. He tells us of the mission that Jesus gives him and how he responds to that mission. We're going to start by looking at verses 9 to 16, where Paul shows us that the gospel is real. It's legit. It's true. It's genuine. I'm going to read from verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did. Paul then spends the next two verses outlining how intensely he treated Christians, voting to have them killed, obsessed with persecuting them, he says, traveling to put them in prison. What's actually quite interesting is Paul's story is quite similar to his accusers, to what they're doing to him right now. I was the most zealous Jew you could find. I was on your side of the fence, actually, hunting down Christians. I know where you're at. I'm not promoting the, the, the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth from a place that far away from where you are. I'm proclaiming him actually as one who once was in your place, doing what you're doing. But something changed for Paul. Jesus met Paul. He shined a bright light toward Paul on the road to Damascus, spoke to him in his own language, in Aramaic, and said, why are you persecuting me? A really brief pause. Just be encouraged by that. If you're a Christian, you face opposition. Jesus is copying it with you. That's part of what it means to be united with Christ. He walks that pain with you. It's part of what it means to him to be your shepherd. He bears the blows. But then the next thing Paul says in response to that is, who are you, Lord? In a sense, Paul gets what's going on here, in a way. He gets that he's being spoken to sorry, by God. He just doesn't really get who God is. Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus answers, verse 15, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So Paul's just put, put it to us that it's plausible for God to raise the dead. And now we're saying he knows it's true because he's met the guy who raised, who was risen. Jesus. Now maybe that's easy to say. Now nobody else heard Paul speak. Sorry, nobody else heard Jesus speak to Paul. How do we know Paul's not just making it all up? I'll say, fair enough. That's a good question. I think the answer is this. Paul's life was instantly different. The reason Paul goes to such great lengths to talk of his previous life is because it is so dramatically different. Paul went from a radical Jewish teacher devoting his life to persecuting Christians, to killing them, to a radical Christian preacher who eventually was killed for preaching the message he used to persecute. Crazy difference. The gospel is genuine. You don't, you don't do that. You don't change in that kind of way as a joke, as a hoax, just as, as a gamble, see how a different walk of life might go. No, you do that. You make that change because you met the guy who died and rose again. Last week, we spoke a little bit about the historical reliability of the resurrection. If you want to know if the gospel message is genuine, you can go and look at the historical record and see that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for why his tomb was empty. 
For Paul, he doesn't need the historical record. He is there at the time and he met Jesus. He met the risen Jesus. So Paul can use his story. And that's what he's done. He's sharing his story of meeting Jesus. I want to say, you can do the same. If you're a Christian, Jesus has met you too. You have met the risen Jesus. He has revealed himself to you. He is is changing your heart to make you more like himself. And so if you have, and so sorry, you have a story to share as well of meeting Jesus. This isn't unique to Paul, although his story is unique. I want to encourage you, refine your testimony. Think about it. Think about how you might use your story to point people to Jesus, to point people to the gospel. Don't be afraid to share with people how Jesus has come into your life because he has. I also want to extend a little challenge as well. Something to consider at least. Let the prospect or the potential of having to share your story be a motivator to actually live a changed life as well. The gospel changes us. We're told that throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit is in us, renewing our hearts to make us more like Jesus. What a blessing that is. Paul's dramatically changed life is evidence of the truth of him meeting Jesus. I want to encourage you, endeavor to live a life that evidences the work that Jesus has done in your heart. Paul, in a letter he writes to a church in Ephesus, he urges them to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. To be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Live a life that evidences the work Jesus has done in your heart. The gospel is genuine. And Paul shows it through meeting Jesus. And that's proven in his radically changed life. At the start, earlier on, I gave a brief definition of the gospel. We come to the third point to ask that question, what is the gospel? Where Paul seems to flesh it out in this last part of his speech as he gives us the mission that Jesus gave him and how he responds to that mission. Let's look at verses 17 to 23. What is the gospel? Paul's speech is actually quite strange in a lot of ways, especially if we compare it to, to what he's been doing last week, what he was doing last week. He's being accused by the Jews still. He's still on trial. Unlike last week, though, where Paul seems to really defend his innocence, here Paul almost, not quite, but almost seems to be ignoring his innocence and just promoting the gospel, just trying to put the gospel out there. Guys, it's plausible that God raised someone from the dead. Guys, it's true, it's genuine, I've met the risen Jesus. And then Paul goes on to tell Agrippa what Jesus wanted Paul to do what Jesus wanted him to do. And this is where we get a picture of what the gospel is. I want to say it comes to us in two parts. The first is the benefits of the gospel. And the second is the achievement of those benefits. Let's look at verse 17. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here are the benefits. The first one we're told about is salvation, taken from darkness 
to light, from the power of Satan to God. The first benefit of the gospel is that those who receive this message, this good news, will be saved. Salvation. All of us are in darkness. We're all in the darkness of sin. We're under the power of Satan who wants us to oppose and rebel against God. That's what sin is. Rebellion against God. And it takes us away from God's guiding and life-giving light to the blindness of life-destroying darkness. But when you rebel against the giver of life and light, all you find is darkness and death. And the gospel says that we can be saved from that darkness to God's eternal life. The first benefit is salvation. Second is the forgiveness of sins. The way we are saved is that God forgives us of that rebellion against him. God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. God remembers our sin no more. Full forgiveness, full pardon. The forgiveness of sins is the second benefit. And the third benefit that we see here is a place among the sanctified. By forgiving us, we are made pure, sinless. A word the Bible uses to describe this is holy, and that's what sanctified means, to be made holy. God forgives our sins so we become holy and receive a place among all those whom God has made holy. That is, we enter eternity with God, our forgiving Father, who is the only truly holy one. An eternity without the stain that sin has left on us in the world, an eternity forgiven and cleansed, pure and holy. Maybe you could sum it up by saying we're given a perfect home. Perfect home. The benefits of the gospel are salvation, saved from darkness, forgiveness, your sin remembered no more, and a home, an eternal place among the holy. How are they achieved? They're the benefits. How did we get them? There's a hint in the last four words of verse 18. By faith in me. By faith in me. All this is achieved by placing faith in Jesus. Faith is often a misunderstood word. It's often a word thrown around pretty easily. You know, sometimes it might get described as a blind and brainless clutching in the dark. No, that's not what faith is. Faith is a firm trust in that which one must depend on and is confident in doing so. I like to think about it like a drowning person clinging to a lifeguard, knowing that the lifeguard is the only one who can get them out of that situation, knowing that that lifeguard has the skill, strength, the expertise to save them. So they entrust themselves to that person to bring them to shore. It's entrusting yourself to one who has the power to save by accepting their offer to save. So Jesus is saying, you get all these benefits by entrusting yourself to me. I'm the one who can do it for you. But how does he do it for us? How is it achieved? Verses 22 and 23. This is now Paul talking again. God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead, 
would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Jesus achieves those benefits by dying and rising again. Jesus is the one Paul is calling the Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament talks about who will save God's people and he does it by dying. His death pays the penalty for, the, for sin, the penalty that we deserve. Jesus enters the darkness of our sin to bring us to the light so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and brought to a home, eternal home. And in his resurrection, he defeats sin and death, ensuring us this eternal home, this place among the holy. This is the message of light Paul talks about there. The end of verse 23. Put faith in the one who has died for your sin and risen for your salvation and you will receive all these benefits. That's the gospel. You will have your sins forgiven, your guilt washed, you will be made holy and you'll have a home, an eternal home, life forever with your heavenly Father. I want to say if you've never done that before, if you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus, do it today. Do it today. Trust yourself to Jesus. And they're the benefits that you will receive. I said earlier that the gospel is the message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this is it. He came, he died, he rose again to save sinners. Those who trust in him. In the 1980s, I wasn't alive then, but I was told, there was a sitcom. There was a sitcom called The Golden Girls. And it traces the stories of these four women. They all live together. It's funny. Marin and I do watch it sometimes at home. In one episode, one of the characters, Blanche, her sister pays her a visit. Now, you, you find out very quickly, she does not get along with her sister. She doesn't like her. But her sister has come, her sister has come to ask Blanche to donate her an organ. And so because they don't, she doesn't like her sister, you know, a lot of the episode is her thinking, about, am I going to do this? Do I really do I want to save my sister? And she decides that she does. She wants to donate her kidney. And her reason is, I want my sister to live. I want my sister to live. Organ donation is, is an incredible thing, right? I will give up a part of my body so that the other person can live. There's a huge cost, but a massive benefit, right? We need to understand that the benefits of forgiveness, of salvation, of an eternal home come at a huge cost. Christ would die in our place. A payment only he could make, and he does make it for you, for me. And the benefits are secured in his resurrection. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The chapter then ends with Paul putting a question to Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa gets it. Agrippa gets what Paul is doing here. You're trying to convince me to become a Christian. How can you do that in such a short time? And then we get this incredible answer from Paul. Short time or long? I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
Let that sink in just for a second. If, if you want, reread it now. I'm going to pause for like, I don't know, 10 seconds or something. Reread that right now. How Paul answers Agrippa. Just think about his context. He's standing there on trial, facing all this opposition, and he prays for them that they might know Jesus as well, that they might be a follower, that they might receive that forgiveness, that salvation, that eternal home. That's Paul's concern right there in the melting pot. My concern is that you might know Jesus. Amazing. What is the most important thing in your life? We can be so distracted, right? By fear, by wealth, by busyness, by family, by the stress that that brings, by the aspirations those things bring. We can be so distracted that the gospel becomes an afterthought. Maybe it's something we say for Sundays, but only, only the Sundays that we're not busy enough to be doing something else. Paul's speech shows us what is most important to Paul, and this prayer emphasizes it in a huge way. The gospel itself. You know, I think it's quite ironic that in our lives, excuse me, that in our lives we're distracted from the gospel by things that actually find their antidote and their best fulfillment in the gospel. Fear. The gospel is a balm for our terrified souls. Why? Because Christ has been raised to God's right hand above all authorities and rulers. No need to fear. The gospel is the answer to our pursuit of wealth. Because we will become inherit well, we are inheritors of a treasure that will never perish, spoil, or fade. The gospel is actually our answer to the life of busyness and stress. Because Jesus is preparing a room for you where you will have eternal rest and be eternally satisfied in Christ. The gospel is the pinnacle of family. You're reconciled to your perfect heavenly father, adopted as one of his children, known by him. Keep the gospel as the most important thing in your life. Let it lead you to be here at church to hear about it, to speak to others about it, to speak it to others. Let it lead you to read God's words daily, to let him speak to you about how everything is culminates in the gospel. Make your life a signpost that can point others to it and let your words proclaim it to those. Share it with others because you know what? Your friends and your family who don't know Jesus, they can actually find the same answers that you do in the gospel. They can find a balm for their fear. They can find eternal treasure. They can find eternal safety and security, a perfect family, forgiven, washed, an eternal home. I told you at the start about a quote from a soccer player. Bit of a laugh. Most important thing for him was football. What does that offer? What does that offer? In eternity, not a whole lot. What do our competing priorities in our own lives offer in eternity? Not a whole lot. Not compared with, not when held up against the gospel. I'm going to finish with another quote. 
This one's from a 17th century preacher for whom, you know, as you read about him, the gospel was the most important thing. A man whose life actually was riddled with a lot of difficulty and hardship, but he kept preaching the gospel, coming back to it. So as you listen, weigh up what you think is worthwhile to have as the most important thing in your life. This is what he said. Let afflictions come. Let trials be multiplied as God wills. Still this joy is far above all others. The joy that we are unto God, a sweet aroma of Christ in every place. And that as often as we preach the word, hearts are unlocked, bosoms heave with new life, eyes weep for sin, and their tears are wiped away as they see the great substitute for sin and live. Only the gospel offers salvation. Forgiveness from sin, a new eternal home, and life with our Father. Make it the most important thing in your life. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you had a plan to save. That you wrote about it in the Old Testament and that it was all fulfilled in Jesus. Thank you that he willingly took our punishment and entered the darkness so that we could be brought into your light. Please give us the strength by your spirit to make it the most important thing in our life and keep living, looking forward to that eternal home that you've prepared for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.